Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 43. Patriarchal Customs. Magnificent Baalbek. Description of the Ruins, Scribbling Smiths and Joneses, Pilgrim Infidelity to the Letter of the Law, The Reverend Fountain of Balaam's Ass. We had a tedious ride of about five hours in the sun across the valley of Lebanon. It proved to be not quite so much of a garden as it had seemed from the hillsides. It was a desert, weed-grown waste, littered thickly with stones the size of a man's fist. Here and there the natives had scratched the ground and reared a sickly crop of grain, but for the most part the valley was given up to a handful of shepherds whose flocks were doing what they honestly could to get a living, but the chances were against them. We saw rude piles of stones standing near the roadside at intervals, and recognized the custom of marking boundaries which obtained in Jacob's time. There were no walls, no fences, no hedges, nothing to secure a man's possessions but these random heaps of stones. The Israelites held them sacred in the old patriarchal times, and these other Arabs, their lineal descendants, do so likewise. An American of ordinary intelligence would soon widely extend his property at an outlay of mere manual labor, performed at night, under so loose a system of fencing as this. The plows these people use are simply a sharpened stick, such as Abraham plowed with, and they still winnow their wheat as they did, they pile it on the house-top, and then toss it by shovelfuls into the air until the wind has blown all the chaff away. They never invent anything, never learn anything. We had a fine race of a mile with an Arab perched on a camel. Some of the horses were fast, and made very good time, but the camel scampered by them without any very real effort. The yelling and shouting, and whipping and galloping, of all parties interested, made it an exhilarating, exciting, and particularly boisterous race. At eleven o'clock our eyes fell upon the walls and columns of Baalbek, a noble ruin whose history is a sealed book. It has stood there for thousands of years, the wonder and admiration of travellers, but who built it, or when it was built, are questions that may never be answered. One thing is very sure, though. Such grandeur of design, and such grace of execution, as one sees in the temples of Baalbek, have not been equalled or even approached in any work of men's hands that has been built within twenty centuries past. The great temple of the sun, the temple of Jupiter, and several smaller temples, are clustered together in the midst of one of these miserable Assyrian villages, and look strangely enough in such plebeian company. These temples are built upon massive substructions that might support a world, almost. The materials used are blocks of stone as large as an omnibus. Very few, if any of them, are smaller than a carpenter's tool-chest, and these substructions are traversed by tunnels of masonry through which a train of cars might pass. With such foundations as these, it is little wonder that Baalbek has lasted so long. The Temple of the Sun is nearly three hundred feet long and one hundred and sixty feet wide. 
It had fifty-four columns around it, but only six are standing now. The others lie broken at its base, a confused and picturesque heap. The six columns are their bases, Corinthian capitals and entablature, and six more shapely columns do not exist. The columns and the entablature together are ninety feet high, a prodigious altitude for shafts of stone to reach, truly, and yet one only thinks of their beauty and symmetry when looking at them. The pillars look slender and delicate. The entablature, with its elaborate sculpture, looks like rich stucco-work. But when you have gazed aloft, till your eyes are weary, you glance at the great fragments of pillars among which you are standing, and find that they are eight feet through, and with them lie beautiful capitals apparently as large as a small cottage, and also single slabs of stone, superbly sculptured, that are four or five feet thick, and would completely cover the floor of any ordinary parlour. You wonder where these monstrous things came from, and it takes some little time to satisfy yourself that the city and graceful fabric that towers above your head is made up of their mates. It seems too preposterous. The Temple of Jupiter is a smaller ruin than the one I have been speaking of, and yet is immense. It is in a tolerable state of preservation. One row of nine columns stands almost uninjured. They are sixty-five feet high, and support a sort of porch or roof, which connects them with the roof of the building. This porch-roof is composed of tremendous slabs of stone, which are so finely sculptured on the underside that the work looks like a fresco from below. One or two of these slabs had fallen, and again I wondered if the gigantic masses of carved stone that lay about me were no larger than those above my head. Within the temple the ornamentation was elaborate and colossal. What a wonder of architectural beauty and grandeur this edifice must have been when it was new! And what a noble picture it and its statelier companion, with the chaos of mighty fragments scattered about them, yet makes in the moonlight! I cannot conceive how those immense blocks of stone were ever hauled from the quarries, or how they were ever raised to the dizzy heights they occupy in the temples. And yet these sculptured blocks are trifles in size, compared with the rough-hewn blocks that form the wide veranda of platform which surrounds the great temple. One stretch of that platform, two hundred feet long, is composed of blocks of stone as large, and some of them larger, than a street-car. They surmount a wall about ten or twelve feet high. I thought those were large rocks, but they sank into insignificance compared with those which formed another section of the platform. These were three in number and I thought that each of them was about as long as three street-cars placed end to end, though, of course, they are a third wider and a third higher than a street-car. Perhaps two railway freight-cars of the largest pattern, placed end to end, might better represent their size. In combined length these three stones stretch nearly two hundred feet. They are thirteen feet square, two of them are sixty-four feet long each, and the third is sixty-nine. They are built into the massive wall some twenty feet above the ground. They are there, but how they got there is the question. I have seen the hull of a steamboat that was smaller than one of those stones. All these great walls are as exact and shapely as the flimsy things we build of bricks in these days. A race of gods or of giants must have inhabited Baalbek many a century ago. Men like the men of our day could hardly rear such temples as these. We went to the quarry from whence the stones of Baalbek were taken. It was about a quarter of a mile off, and downhill. 
In a great pit lay the mate of the largest stone in the ruins. It lay there just as the giants of that old forgotten time had left it when they were called hence, just as they had left it, to remain for thousands of years an eloquent rebuke unto such as are prone to think slightingly of the men who lived before them. This enormous block lies there, squared and ready for the builder's hands, a solid mass fourteen feet by seventeen, and but a few inches less than seventy feet long. Two buggies could be driven abreast of each other, on its surface, from one end of it to the other, and leave room enough for a man or two to walk on either side. One might swear that all the John Smiths and George Wilkinsons and all the other pitiful nobodies between Kingdom Come and Baalbek would inscribe their poor little names upon the walls of Baalbek's magnificent ruins, and would add the town, the county, and the state they came from, and swearing thus be infallibly correct. It is a pity some great ruin does not fall in and flatten out some of these reptiles, and scare their kind out of ever giving their names to fame upon any walls or monuments again, forever. Properly, with the sorry relics we bestrode, it was a three days' journey to Damascus. It was necessary that we should do it in less than two. It was necessary because our three pilgrims would not travel on the Sabbath day. We were all perfectly willing to keep the Sabbath day, but there are times when to keep the letter of a sacred law whose spirit is righteous becomes a sin and this was a case in point. We pleaded for the tired, ill-treated horses, and tried to show that their faithful service deserved kindness in return, and their hard lot compassion. But when did ever self-righteousness know the sentiment of pity? What were a few long hours added to the hardships of some overtaxed brutes, when weighed against the peril of those human souls? It was not the most promising party to travel with, and hoped to gain a higher veneration for religion through the example of its devotees. We said the Saviour who pitied dumb beasts, and taught that the ox must be rescued from the mire even on the Sabbath day, would not have counseled a forced march like this. We said the long trip was exhausting, and therefore dangerous in the blistering heats of summer, even when the ordinary day's stages were traversed, and if we persisted in this hard march, some of us might be stricken down with the fevers of the country in consequence of it. Nothing could move the pilgrims. They must press on. Men might die, horses might die, but they must enter upon holy soil next week, with no Sabbath-breaking stain upon them. Thus they were willing to commit a sin against the spirit of religious law, in order that they might preserve the letter of it. It was not worth while to tell them, THE LETTER KILLS. I am talking now about personal friends, men whom I like, men who are good citizens, who are honorable, upright, conscientious, but whose ideas of the Saviour's religion seems to me distorted. They lecture our shortcomings unsparingly, and every night they call us together, and read to us chapters from the Testament that are full of gentleness, of charity, and of tender mercy. And then all the next day they stick to their saddles clear up to the summits of these rugged mountains, and clear down again apply the Testament's gentleness and charity and tender mercy to a toiling, worn, and weary horse? Nonsense! These are for God's human creatures, not His dumb ones. What the pilgrims choose to do, respect for their almost sacred character, demands that I should allow to pass. But I would so like to catch any other member of the party riding his horse up one of these exhausting hills once. We have given the pilgrims a good many examples that might benefit them but it is virtue thrown away. 
They have never heard a cross word out of our lips towards each other, but they have quarreled once or twice. We love to hear them at it, after they have been lecturing us. The very first thing they did, coming ashore at Beirut, was to quarrel in the boat. I have said I like them, and I do like them, but every time they read me a scorcher of a lecture I mean to talk back in print. Not content with doubling the legitimate stages, they switched off the main road and went away out of the way to visit an absurd fountain called Figia, because Balaam's ass had drunk there once. So we journeyed on, through the terrible hills and deserts and the roasting sun, and then far into the night, seeking the honored pool of Balaam's ass, the patron saint of all pilgrims like us. I find no entry but this in my notebook. Rode to-day altogether thirteen hours through deserts, partly and partly over barren, unsightly hills, and latterly through wild, rocky scenery, and camped at about eleven o'clock at night on the banks of a limpid stream near a Syrian village. Do not know its name. Do not wish to know it. Want to go to bed. Two horses lame, mine and Jack's, and the others worn out. Jack and I walked three or four miles over the hills and led the horses. Fun, but of a mild type. Twelve or thirteen hours in the saddle, even in a Christian land and a Christian climate, and on a good horse, is a tiresome journey. But in an oven like Syria, in a ragged spoon of a saddle that slips fore and aft and thwart ships and every way, and on a horse that is tired and lame, and yet must be whipped and spurred with hardly a moment's cessation all day long, till the blood comes from his side, and your conscience hurts you every time you strike, if you are half a man. It is a journey to be remembered in bitterness of spirit, and execrated with emphasis for a liberal division of a man's lifetime. End of chapter 43 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. THE INNOCENTS ABROAD by Mark Twain CHAPTER 44 EXTRACTS FROM NOTEBOOK MOHAMMED'S PARADISE AND THE BIBLES BEAUTIFUL DAMASCUS, THE OLDEST CITY ON EARTH ORIENTAL SCENES WITHIN THE CURIOUS OLD CITY DAMASCUS STREETCAR THE STORY OF ST. PAUL THE STREET CALLED STRAIGHT MOHAMMED'S TOMB AND ST. GEORGE'S THE CHRISTIAN MASSACRE MOHAMMEDAN DREAD OF POLLUTION THE HOUSE OF NAMAN the horrors of leprosy. The next day was an outrage upon men and horses both. It was another thirteen-hour stretch, including an hour's nooning. It was over the barrenest chalk hills and through the baldest cannons that even Syria can show. The heat quivered in the air everywhere. In the cannons we almost smothered in the baking atmosphere. On high ground the reflection of the chalk hills was blinding. It was cruel to urge the crippled horses but it had to be done in order to make Damascus Saturday night. We saw ancient tombs and temples of fanciful architecture carved out of the solid rock, high up in the face of precipices above our heads, but we had neither time nor strength to climb up there and examine them. The terse language of my notebook will answer for the rest of this day's experiences. Broke camp at seven a.m., and made a ghastly trip through the Zeb Dana Valley and the rough mountains, horses limping and that Arab screech-owl that does most of the singing and carries the water-skins, always a thousand miles ahead, of course, and no water to drink, will he never die. Beautiful stream in a chasm, lined thick with pomegranate, fig, 
olive, and quince orchards, and nooned an hour at the celebrated Balaam's Ass Fountain of Figia, second in size in Syria, and the coldest water out of Siberia. Guide-books do not say Balaam's Ass ever drank there. Somebody been imposing on the pilgrims, maybe. Bathed in it, Jack and I, only a second, ice-water. It is the principal source of the Abana River, only one-half mile down to where it joins. Beautiful place, giant trees all around, so shady and cool, if one could keep awake. Vast stream gushes straight out from under the mountain in a torrent. Over it is a very ancient ruin, with no known history, supposed to have been for the worship of the deity of a fountain or Balaam's ass or somebody. Wretched nest of human vermin about the fountain, rags, dirt, sunken cheeks, pallor of sickness, sores, projecting bones, dull, aching misery in their eyes, and ravenous hunger speaking from every eloquent fibre and muscle from head to foot. How they sprang upon a bone! How they crunched the bread we gave them! Such as these, to swarm about one, and watch every bite he takes, with greedy looks, and swallow unconsciously every time he swallows, as if they half fancied the precious morsel went down their own throats. Hurry up the caravan! I never shall enjoy a meal in this distressful country. To think of eating three times every day under such circumstances for three weeks yet! It is worse punishment than riding all day in the sun. There are sixteen starving babies from one to six years old in the party, and their legs are no larger than broom-handles. Left the fountain at one p.m. The fountain took us at least two hours out of our way, and reached Mohammed's lookout perch over Damascus, in time to get a good long look before it was necessary to move on. Tired? Ask of the winds that far away with fragments strewed the sea. As the glare of day mellowed into twilight, we looked down upon a picture which is celebrated all over the world. I think I have read about four hundred times that, when Mohammed was a simple camel-driver, he reached this point, and looked down upon Damascus for the first time, and then made a certain renowned remark. He said, man could enter only one paradise. He preferred to go to the one above. So he sat down there, and feasted his eyes upon the earthly paradise of Damascus and then went away without entering its gates. They have erected a tower on the hill to mark the spot where he stood. Damascus is beautiful from the mountain. It is beautiful even to foreigners accustomed to luxuriant vegetation, and I can easily understand how unspeakably beautiful it must be to eyes that are only used to the God-forsaken barrenness and desolation of Syria. I should think a Syrian would go wild with ecstasy when such a picture burst upon him for the first time. From his high perch one sees before him, and below him, a wall of dreary mountains, shorn of vegetation, glaring fiercely in the sun. It fences in a level desert of yellow sand, smooth as velvet, and threaded far away with fine lines that stand for roads, and dotted with creeping mites we know are camel-trains, and journeying men. Right in the midst of the desert is spread a billowy expanse of green foliage and nestling in its heart sits the great white city, like an island of pearls and opals, gleaming out of a sea of emeralds. This is the picture you see spread far below you, with distance to soften it, the sun to glorify it, strong contrast to heighten the effects, 
and over it and about it a drowsing air of repose to spiritualize it and make it seem rather a beautiful estray from the mysterious worlds we visit in dreams than a substantial tenant of our coarse dull globe and when you think of the leagues of blighted blasted sandy rocky sunburnt ugly dreary infamous country you have ridden over to get here you think it is the most beautiful, beautiful picture that ever human eyes rested upon in all the broad universe. If I were to go to Damascus again, I would camp on Mohammed's hill about a week, and then go away. There is no need to go inside the walls. The Prophet was wise without knowing it when he decided not to go down into the paradise of Damascus. There is an honored old tradition that the immense garden which Damascus stands in was the Garden of Eden and modern writers have gathered up many chapters of evidence tending to show that it really was the Garden of Eden, and that the rivers Farpar and Abadna are the two rivers that watered Adam's paradise. It may be so, but it is not paradise now, and one would be as happy outside of it as he would be likely to be within. It is so crooked and cramped and dirty that one cannot realize that he is in the splendid city he saw from the hilltop. The gardens are hidden by high mud walls, and the paradise has become a very sink of pollution and uncomeliness. Damascus has plenty of clear, pure water in it, though, and this is enough of itself to make an Arab think it beautiful and blessed. Water is scarce in blistered Syria. We run railways by our large cities in America. In Syria they curve the roads so as to make them run by the meagre little puddles they call fountains and which are not found oftener on a journey than every four hours. But the rivers of Farpar and Abana of Scripture, mere creeks, run through Damascus, and so every house and every garden have their sparkling fountains and rivulets of water. With her forest of foliage and her abundance of water, Damascus must be a wonder of wonders to the Bedouin from the deserts. Damascus is simply an oasis. That is what it is. For four thousand years its waters have not gone dry, or its fertility failed. Now we can understand why the city has existed so long. It could not die, so long as its waters remained to it away out there in the midst of that howling desert, so long will Damascus live to bless the sight of the tired and thirsty wayfarer. Though old as history itself, though art fresh as the breath of spring, blooming as thine own rosebud, and fragrant as thine own orange-flower, O Damascus, pearl of the east!" Damascus dates back anterior to the days of Abraham, and is the oldest city in the world. It was founded by Uz, the grandson of Noah. The early history of Damascus is shrouded in the midst of a hoary antiquity. Leave the matters written of in the first eleven chapters of the Old Testament out, and no recorded event has occurred in the world but Damascus was in existence to receive the news of it. Go back as far as you will into the vague past, there was always a Damascus. In the writings of every century for more than four thousand years its name has been mentioned and its praises sung. To Damascus years are only moments. Decades are only flitting trifles of time. She measures time, not by days and months and years, but by the empires she has seen rise, and prosper, and crumble to ruin. She is a type of immortality. She saw the foundations of Baalbek, and Thebes, and Ephesus laid. She saw these villages grow into mighty cities, and amaze the world with their grandeur. 
and she has lived to see them desolate, deserted, and given over to the owls and the bats. She saw the Israelitish empire exalted, and she saw it annihilated. She saw Greece rise, and flourish two thousand years, and die. In her old age she saw Rome built. She saw it overshadow the world with its power. She saw it perish. The few hundreds of years of Genoese and Venetian might and splendor were, to grave old Damascus, only a trifling scintillation, hardly worth remembering. Damascus has seen all that has ever occurred on earth, and still she lives. She has looked upon the dry bones of a thousand empires, and will see the tombs of a thousand more before she dies. Though another claims the name, old Damascus is by right the eternal city. We reach the city gates just at sundown. They do say that one can get into any walled city of Syria, after night, for bakshish except Damascus. But Damascus, with its four thousand years of respectability in the world, has many old fogey notions. There are no street lamps there, and the law compels all who go abroad at night to carry lanterns, just as was the case in old days, when heroes and heroines of the Arabian Nights walked the streets of Damascus, or flew away toward Baghdad on enchanted carpets. It was fairly dark a few minutes after we got within the wall, and we rode long distances through wonderfully crooked streets, eight to ten feet wide, and shut in on either side by the high mud-walls of the gardens. At last we got to where lanterns could be seen flitting about here and there, and knew we were in the midst of the curious old city. In a little narrow street, crowded with our pack-mules and with a swarm of uncouth Arabs, we alighted, and through a kind of a hole in the wall entered the hotel. We stood in a great flagged court, with flowers and citron-trees about us, and a huge tank in the centre that was receiving the waters of many pipes. We crossed the court, and entered the rooms prepared to receive four of us. In a large marble-paved recess between the two rooms was a tank of clear, cool water, which was kept running over all the time by the streams that were pouring into it from half a dozen pipes. Nothing in this scorching, desolate land could look so refreshing as this pure water flashing in the lamplight. Nothing could look so beautiful, nothing could sound so delicious as this mimic rain to ears long unaccustomed to sounds of such a nature. Our rooms were large, comfortably furnished, and even had their floors closed with soft, cheerful-tinted carpets. It was a pleasant thing to see a carpet again, for if there is anything drearier than the tomb-like stone-paved parlors and bedrooms of Europe and Asia, I do not know what it is. They make one think of the grave all the time. A very broad, gaily caparisoned divan, some twelve or fourteen feet long, extended across one side of each room, and opposite were single beds with spring mattresses. There were great looking-glasses and marble-top tables. All this luxury was as grateful to systems and senses worn out with an exhausting day's travel as it was unexpected, for one cannot tell what to expect in a Turkish city of even a quarter of a million inhabitants. I do not know, but I think they used that tank between the rooms to draw drinking water from. That did not occur to me, however, until I had dipped my baking head far down into its cool depths. I thought of it then, and, superb as the bath was, I was sorry I had taken it, and was about to go and explain to the landlord. But a finely curled and scented poodle-dog frisked up and nipped the calf of my leg just then, and before I had time to think, I had soused him to the bottom of the tank and when I saw a servant coming with a pitcher, 
I went off and left the pup trying to climb out and not succeeding very well. Satisfied revenge was all I needed to make me perfectly happy, and when I walked in to supper that first night in Damascus, I was in that condition. We lay on those divans a long time after supper, smoking nargalies and long-stemmed chibooks, and talking about the dreadful ride of the day, and I knew then what I had sometimes known before, that it is worth while to get tired out, because one so enjoys resting afterward. In the morning we sent for donkeys. It is worthy of note that we had to send for these things. I said Damascus was an old fossil, and she is. Anywhere else we would have been assailed by a clamorous army of donkey-drivers, guides, peddlers, and beggars. But in Damascus they so hate the very sight of a foreign Christian that they want no intercourse whatever with him. Only a year or two ago his person was not always safe in Damascus streets. It is the most fanatical Mohammedan purgatory out of Arabia. Where you see one green turban of a haji elsewhere, the honored sign that my lord has made the pilgrimage to Mecca, I think you will see a dozen in Damascus. The Damascenes are the ugliest, wickedest-looking villains we have seen. All the veiled women we had seen yet, nearly, left their eyes exposed, but numbers of these in Damascus completely hid the face under a close-drawn black veil that made the woman look like a mummy. If ever we caught an eye exposed, it was quickly hidden from our contaminating Christian vision. The beggars actually passed us by without demanding bakshish. The merchants in the bazaars did not hold up their goods and cry out eagerly, "'Hey, John!' or, "'Look this, Hawaji!' On the contrary, they only scowled at us and said never a word. The narrow streets swarmed like a hive with men and women in strange oriental costumes, and our small donkeys knocked them right and left as we ploughed through them, urged on by the merciless donkey-boys. These persecutors run after the animals, shouting and gouting them for hours together. They keep the donkey in a gallop always, yet never get tired themselves or fall behind. The donkeys fell down and spilt us over their heads occasionally, but there was nothing for it but to mount and hurry on again. We were banged against sharp corners, loaded porters, camels, and citizens generally, and we were so taken up with looking out for collisions and casualties that we had no chance to look about us at all. We rode half through the city and through the famous street which is called Straight without seeing anything, hardly. Our bones were nearly knocked out of joint, we were wild with excitement, and our sides ached with the jolting we had suffered. I do not like riding in the Damascus street-cars. We were on our way to the reputed houses of Judas and Ananias. About eighteen or nineteen hundred years ago, Saul, a native of Tarsus, was particularly bitter against the new sect called Christians, and he left Jerusalem and started across the country on a furious crusade against them. He went forth breathing threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. And, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And when he knew that it was Jesus that spoke to him, he trembled, and was astonished, and said, Lord, what wilt thou have me do? He was told to arise and go into the ancient city, and one would tell him what to do. In the meantime his soldiers stood speechless and awe-stricken, for they heard the mysterious voice but saw no man. Saul rose up and found that that fierce supernatural light had destroyed his sight, and he was blind. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. 
he was converted. Paul lay three days blind in the house of Judas, and during that time he neither ate nor drank. There came a voice to a citizen of Damascus, named Ananias, saying, Arise, and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. Ananias did not wish to go at first, for he had heard of Saul before, and he had his doubts about that style of a chosen vessel to preach the gospel of peace. However, in obedience to orders, he went into the street called Straight, how he found his way into it, and after he did how he ever found his way out of it again, are mysteries only to be accounted for by the fact that he was acting under divine inspiration. He found Paul, and restored him, and ordained him a preacher, and from this old house we had hunted up in the street which is miscalled straight, he had started out on that bold missionary career which he prosecuted till his death. It was not the house of the disciple who sold the master for thirty pieces of silver. I make this explanation in justice to Judas, who was a far different sort of man from the person just referred to, a very different style of man, and lived in a very good house. It is a pity we do not know more about him. I have given, in the above paragraphs, some more information for people who will not read Bible history until they are defrauded into it by some such method as this. I hope that no friend of progress and education will obstruct or interfere with my peculiar mission. The street called straight is straighter than a corkscrew, but not as straight as a rainbow. St. Luke is careful not to commit himself. He does not say it is the street which is straight but the street which is called straight. It is a fine piece of irony. It is the only facetious remark in the Bible, I believe. We traversed the street called straight a good way, and then turned off and called at the reputed house of Ananias. There is small question that a part of the original house is there still. It is an old room twelve or fifteen feet underground, and its masonry is evidently ancient. If Ananias did not live there in St. Paul's time, somebody else did, which is just as well. I took a drink out of Ananias's well, and singularly enough the water was just as fresh as if the well had been dug yesterday. We went out toward the north end of the city to see the place where the disciples let Paul down over the Damascus wall at dead of night, for he preached Christ so fearlessly in Damascus that the people sought to kill him, just as they would today, for the same offense and he had to escape and flee to Jerusalem. Then we called at the tomb of Mohammed's children, and at a tomb which purported to be that of St. George who killed the dragon, and so on out to the hollow place under a rock where Paul hid during his flight till his pursuers gave him up, and to the mausoleum of five thousand Christians who were massacred in Damascus in 1861 by the Turks. They say those narrow streets ran blood for several days, and that men, women, and children were butchered indiscriminately, and left to rot by hundreds all through the Christian quarter. They say further that the stench was dreadful. All the Christians who could get away fled from the city, and the Mohammedans would not defile their hands by burying the infidel dogs. The thirst for blood extended to the high lands of Hermon and anti-Lebanon, and in a short time twenty-five thousand more Christians were massacred, and their possessions laid waste. How they hate a Christian in Damascus! And pretty much all over Turkeydom as well! And how they will pay for it when Russia turns her guns upon them again! It is soothing to the heart to abuse England and France for interposing to save the Ottoman Empire from the destruction it has so richly deserved for a thousand years. 
it hurts my vanity to see these pagans refuse to eat of food that has been cooked for us or to eat from a dish we have eaten from or to drink from a goatskin which we have polluted with our christian lips except by filtering the water through a rag which they put over the mouth of it or through a sponge i never disliked a chinaman as i do these degraded turks and arabs and when russia is ready to war with them again i hope england and france will not find it good breeding or good judgment to interfere in damascus they think there are no such rivers in all the world as their little abana and farpar the damascenes have always thought that way in two kings chapter five naaman boasts extravagantly about them that was three thousand years ago he says are not abana and farpar rivers of damascus better than all the waters of israel may i not wash in them and be clean but some of my readers have forgotten who naaman was long ago naaman was the commander of the syrian armies he was the favorite of the king and lived in great state he was a mighty man of valor but he was a leper strangely enough the house they point out to you now as his has been turned into a leper hospital and the inmates expose their horrid deformities and hold up their hands and beg for bucksheesh when a stranger enters one cannot appreciate the horror of this disease until he looks upon it in all its ghastliness in naaman's ancient dwelling in damascus bones all twisted out of shape great knots protruding from face and body joints decaying and dropping away horrible end of chapter 44 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer visit librivox.org the innocents abroad by mark twain chapter 45 the cholera by way of variety hot another outlandish procession pen and ink photograph of jonesboro syria tomb of nimrod the mighty hunter the stateliest ruin of all stepping over the border of holy land bathing in the sources of jordan more specimen hunting ruins of caesarea philippi on this rock will i build my church the people the disciples knew the noble steed balbec sentimental horse idolatry of the arabs the last twenty-four hours we stayed in damascus i lay prostrate with a violent attack of cholera or cholera morbus and therefore had a good chance and a good excuse to lie there on that wide divan and take an honest rest i had nothing to do but listen to the pattering of the fountains and take medicine and throw it up again it was dangerous recreation but it was pleasanter than travelling in syria i had plenty of snow from mount hermon and as it would not stay on my stomach there was nothing to interfere with my eating it there was always room for more i enjoyed myself very well syrian travel has its interesting features like travel in any other part of the world and yet to break your leg or have the cholera adds a welcome variety to it we left damascus at noon and rode across the plain a couple of hours and then the party stopped a while in the shade of some fig trees to give me a chance to rest it was the hottest day we had seen yet the sun flames shot down like the shafts of fire that stream out before a blowpipe the rays seemed to fall in a steady deluge on the head and pass downward like rain from a roof i imagined i could distinguish between the floods of rays 
I thought I could tell when each flood struck my head, when it reached my shoulders, and when the next one came. It was terrible. All the desert glared so fiercely that my eyes were swimming in tears all the time. The boys had white umbrellas heavily lined with dark green. They were a priceless blessing. I thanked fortune that I had one, too, notwithstanding it was packed up with a baggage and was ten miles ahead. It is madness to travel in Syria without an umbrella. They told me in Beirut, these people who always gorge you with advice, that it was madness to travel in Syria without an umbrella. It was on this account that I got one. But honestly, I think an umbrella is a nuisance anywhere when its business is to keep the sun off. No Arab wears a brim to his fez, or uses an umbrella, or anything to shade his eyes or his face, and he always looks comfortable and proper in the sun. But of all the ridiculous sights I ever have seen, our party of eight is the most so. They do cut such an outlandish figure. They travel single file. They all wear the endless white rag of Constantinople wrapped round and round their hats and dangling down their backs. They all wear thick green spectacles with side-glasses to them. They all hold white umbrellas lined with green over their heads. Without exception, their stirrups are too short. They are the very worst gang of horsemen on earth. Their animals, to a horse, trot fearfully hard, and when they get strung out one after the other, glaring straight ahead and breathless, bouncing high and out of turn, all along the line, knees well up and stiff, elbows flapping like a rooster's that is going to crow, and the long file of umbrellas popping convulsively up and down, when one sees this outrageous picture exposed to the light of day, he is amazed that the gods don't get out their thunderbolts and destroy them off the face of the earth. I do. I wonder at it. I wouldn't let any such caravan go through a country of mine. And when the sun drops below the horizon, and the boys close their umbrellas and put them under their arms, it is only a variation of the picture, not a modification of its absurdity. But maybe you cannot see the wild extravagance of my panorama. You could if you were here. Here you feel all the time just as if you were living about the year 1200 before Christ, or back to the patriarchs, or forward to the new era. The scenery of the Bible is about you. The customs of the patriarchs are around you. The same people, in the same flowing robes, and in sandals, cross your path. The same long trains of stately camels go and come. The same impressive religious solemnity and silence rest upon the desert and the mountains that were upon them in the remote ages of antiquity. And behold, intruding upon a scene like this, comes this fantastic mob of green-spectacled Yanks with their flapping elbows and bobbing umbrellas. It is Daniel in the lion's den with a green cotton umbrella under his arm all over again. My umbrella is with the baggage, and so are my green spectacles, and there they shall stay. I will not use them. I will show some respect for the eternal fitness of things. It will be bad enough to get sunstruck without looking ridiculous into the bargain. If I fail, let me fail bearing about me the semblance of a Christian, at least. Three or four hours out from Damascus we passed the spot where Saul was so abruptly converted, and from this place we looked back over the scorching desert, and had our last glimpse of beautiful Damascus, decked in its robes of shining green. After nightfall we reached our tents just outside of the nasty Arab village of Jonesboro. 
Of course, the real name of the place is El Something or Other, but the boys still refuse to recognize the Arab names or try to pronounce them. When I say that that village is of the usual style, I mean to insinuate that all Syrian villages within fifty miles of Damascus are alike, so much alike that it would require more than human intelligence to tell wherein one differed from another. A Syrian village is a hive of huts one story high, the height of a man, and as square as a dry-goods box. It is mud-plastered all over, flat roof and all, and generally whitewashed after a fashion. The same roof often extends over half the town, covering many of the streets, which are generally about a yard wide. When you ride through one of these villages at noonday, you first meet a melancholy dog, that looks up at you and silently begs that you won't run over him, but he does not offer to get out of the way. Next you meet a young boy without any clothes on, and he holds out his hand and says, Bookshish! He don't really expect assent, but then he learned to say that before he learned to say mother, and now he cannot break himself of it. Next you meet a woman with a black veil drawn closely over her face, and her bust exposed. Finally you come to several sore-eyed children, and children in all stages of mutilation and decay. And, sitting humbly in the dust, and all fringed with filthy rags, is a poor devil whose arms and legs are gnarled and twisted like grapevines. These are all people you are likely to see. The balance of the population are asleep within doors, or abroad tending goats in the plains and on the hillsides. The village is built on some consumptive little watercourse, and about it is a little fresh-looking vegetation. Beyond this charmed circle, for miles on every side, stretches a weary desert of sand and gravel, which produces a gray, bunchy shrub like sagebrush. A Syrian village is the sorriest sight in the world, and its surroundings are eminently in keeping with it. I would not have gone into this dissertation upon Syrian villages but for the fact that Nimrod, the mighty hunter of scriptural notoriety, is buried in Jonesboro and I wish the public to know about how he is located. Like Homer, he is said to be buried in many other places, but this is the only true and genuine place his ashes inhabit. When the original tribes were dispersed, more than four thousand years ago, Nimrod and a large party traveled three or four hundred miles, and settled where the great city of Babylon afterwards stood. Nimrod built that city. He also began to build the famous Tower of Babel, but circumstances over which he had no control put it out of his power to finish it. He ran it up eight stories high, however, and two of them still stand at this day. A colossal mass of brickwork rent down the center by earthquakes, and seared and vitrified by the lightnings of an angry god. But the vast ruin will still stand for ages, to shame the puny labors of these modern generations of men. Its huge compartments are tenanted by owls and lions, and old Nimrod lies neglected in this wretched village, far from the scene of his grand enterprise. We left Jonesboro very early in the morning, and rode forever and forever and forever, it seemed to me, over parched deserts and rocky hills, hungry, and with no water to drink. We had drained the goatskins dry in a little while. At noon we halted before the wretched Arab town of El Yubadam, perched on the side of a mountain, but the dragomen said if we applied there for water we would be attacked by the whole tribe, for they did not love Christians. We had to journey on. 
Two hours later we reached the foot of a tall, isolated mountain, which is crowned by the crumbling castle of Benias, the stateliest ruin of that kind on earth, no doubt. It is a thousand feet long and two hundred wide, all of the most symmetrical and at the same time the most ponderous masonry. The massive towers and bastions are more than thirty feet high, and have been sixty. From the mountain's peak its broken turrets rise above the groves of ancient oaks and olives, and look wonderfully picturesque. It is of such high antiquity that no man knows who built it, or when it was built. It is utterly inaccessible, except in one place, where a bridle-path winds upward among the solid rocks to the old portcullis. The horses' hoofs have bored holes in these rocks to the depth of six inches during the hundreds and hundreds of years that the castle was garrisoned. We wandered for three hours among the chambers and crypts and dungeons of the fortress, and trod where the mailed heels of many a knightly crusader had rang, and where Phoenician heroes had walked ages before them. We wondered how such a solid mass of masonry could be affected even by an earthquake, and could not understand what agency had made Benias a ruin. But we found the destroyer after a while, and then our wonder was increased tenfold. Seeds had fallen in crevices in the vast walls. The seeds had sprouted. The tender, insignificant sprouts had hardened. They grew larger and larger, and by a steady, imperceptible pressure forced the great stones apart, and now are bringing sure destruction upon a giant work that has even mocked the earthquakes to scorn. Gnarled and twisted trees spring from the old walls everywhere, and beautify and overshadow the gray battlements with a wild luxuriance of foliage. From these old towers we looked down upon a broad, far-reaching green plain, glittering with the pools and rivulets which are the sources of the sacred river Jordan. It was a grateful vision, after so much desert. And as the evening drew near, we clambered down the mountain, through groves of the biblical oaks of Bashan, for we were just stepping over the border and entering the long-sought Holy Land, and at its extreme foot, toward the wide valley, we entered this little execrable village of Benias, and camped in a great grove of olive-trees near a torrent of sparkling water, whose banks are arrayed in fig-trees, pomegranates, and oleanders in full leaf. Barring the proximity of the village, it is a sort of paradise. The very first thing one feels like doing when he gets into camp, all burning up and dusty, is to hunt up a bath. We followed the stream up to where it gushes out of the mountain aside, three hundred yards from the tents, and took a bath that was so icy that if I did not know this was the main source of the sacred river, I would expect harm to come of it. It was bathing at noonday in the chilly source of the Abana River of Damascus that gave me the cholera, so Dr. B. said. However, it generally does give me the cholera to take a bath. The incorrigible pilgrims have come in with their pockets full of specimens broken from the ruins. I wish this vandalism could be stopped. They broke off fragments from Noah's tomb, from the exquisite sculptures of the temples of Baalbek, from the houses of Judas and Ananias in Damascus, from the tomb of Nimrod the mighty hunter in Jonesboro, from the worn Greek and Roman inscriptions set in the hoary walls of the castle of Benias, and now they have been hacking and chipping these old arches here that Jesus looked upon in the flesh. Heaven protect the sepulchre when this tribe invades Jerusalem. The ruins here are not very interesting. 
There are the massive walls of a great square building that was once the citadel. There are many ponderous old arches that are so smothered with debris that they barely project above the ground. There are heavy-walled sewers through which the crystal brook of which Jordan is born still runs. In the hillside are the substructions of a costly marble temple that Herod the Great built here. Patches of its handsome mosaic floors still remain. There is a quaint old stone bridge that was here before Herod's time, maybe. Scattered everywhere in the paths and in the woods are Corinthian capitals, broken porphyry pillars, and little fragments of sculpture. And up yonder, in the precipice where the fountain gushes out, are well-worn Greek inscriptions over niches in the rock where in ancient times the Greeks, and after them the Romans, worshipped the sylvan god Pan. But trees and bushes grow above many of these ruins now. The miserable huts of a little crew of filthy Arabs are perched upon the broken masonry of antiquity. The whole place has a sleepy, stupid, rural look about it, and one can hardly bring himself to believe that a busy, substantially built city once existed here, even two thousand years ago. The place was, nevertheless, the scene of an event whose effects have added page after page and volume after volume to the world's history. For in this place Christ stood when he said to Peter, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. On those little sentences have been built up the mighty edifice of the Church of Rome. In them lie the authority for the imperial power of the popes over temporal affairs, and their godlike power to curse a soul or wash it white from sin. To sustain the position of the only true Church, which Rome claims was thus conferred upon her, she has fought and labored and struggled for many a century, and will continue to keep herself busy in the same work to the end of time. The memorable words I have quoted give to this ruined city about all the interest it possesses to people of the present day. It seems curious enough to us to be standing on ground that was once actually pressed by the feet of the Saviour. The situation is suggestive of a reality and a tangibility that seems at variance with the vagueness and mystery and ghostliness that one naturally attaches to the character of a god. I cannot comprehend yet that I am sitting where a god has stood and looking upon the brook and the mountains which that god looked upon, and am surrounded by dusky men and women whose ancestors saw him, and even talked with him face to face, and carelessly, just as they would have done with any other stranger. I cannot comprehend this. The gods of my understanding have been always hidden in clouds, and very far away. This morning, during breakfast, the usual assemblage of squalid humanity sat patiently without the charmed circle of the camp, and waited for such crumbs as pity might bestow upon their misery. There were old and young, brown-skinned and yellow. Some of the men were tall and stalwart, for one hardly sees anywhere such splendid-looking men as here in the East. But all the women and children looked worn and sad, and distressed with hunger. They reminded me much of Indians, did these people. They had but little clothing but such as they had was fanciful in character and fantastic in its arrangement. Any little absurd gewgaw or gimcrack they had they disposed in such a way as to make it attract attention most readily. 
they sat in silence, and with tireless patience watched out every motion with that vile, uncomplaining impoliteness which is so truly Indian, and which makes a white man so nervous and uncomfortable and savage that he wants to exterminate the whole tribe. These people about us had other peculiarities, which I have noticed in the noble red man, too. They were infested with vermin, and the dirt had caked on them till it amounted to bark. The little children were in a pitiable condition. They all had sore eyes, and were otherwise afflicted in various ways. They say that hardly a native child in all the East is free from sore eyes, and that thousands of them go blind of one eye or both every year. I think this must be so, for I see plenty of blind people every day, and I do not remember seeing any children that hadn't sore eyes. And would you suppose that an American mother could sit for an hour with her child in her arms, and let a hundred flies roost upon its eyes all that time undisturbed? I see that every day. It makes my flesh creep. Yesterday we met a woman riding on a little jackass, and she had a little child in her arms. Honestly, I thought the child had goggles on as we approached, and I wondered how its mother could afford so much style. But when we drew near we saw that the goggles were nothing but a camp-meeting of flies assembled around each of the child's eyes, and at the same time there were a detachment prospecting its nose. The flies were happy, the child was contented, and so the mother did not interfere. As soon as the tribe found out that we had a doctor in our party, they began to flock in from all quarters. Dr. B., in the charity of his nature, had taken a child from a woman who sat nearby, and put some sort of a wash upon its diseased eyes. That woman went off and started the whole nation, and it was a sight to see them swarm. The lame, the halt, the blind, the leprous, all the distempers that are bred of indolence, dirt, and iniquity, were represented in the Congress in ten minutes, and still they came. Every woman that had a sick baby brought it along, and every woman that hadn't borrowed one. What reverent and what worshipping looks they bent upon that dread mysterious power, the doctor! They watched him take his files out, they watched him measure the particles of white powder, they watched him add drops of one precious liquid and drops of another. They lost not the slightest movement. Their eyes were riveted upon him with a fascination that nothing could distract. I believe they thought he was gifted like a god. When each individual got his portion of medicine, his eyes were radiant with joy, notwithstanding, by nature, they are a thankless and impassive race, and upon his face was written the unquestioning faith that nothing on earth could prevent the patient from getting well now. Christ knew how to preach to these simple, superstitious, disease-tortured creatures. He healed the sick. They flocked to our poor human doctor this morning, when the fame of what he had done to the sick child went abroad in the land, and they worshipped him with their eyes, while they did not know as yet whether there was virtue in his simples or not. The ancestors of these, people precisely like them in color, dress, manners, customs, simplicity, flocked in vast multitudes after Christ, and when they saw him make the afflicted whole with a word, it is no wonder they worshipped him. No wonder his deeds were the talk of the nation. No wonder the multitude that followed him was so great that at one point, thirty miles from here, they had to let a sick man down through the roof because no approach could be made to the door. No wonder his audience were so great at Galilee that he had to preach from a ship removed a little distance from the shore. No wonder that even in the desert places about Bethsaida five thousand invaded his solitude, 
and he had to feed them by a miracle, or else see them suffer for their confiding faith and devotion. No wonder, when there was a great commotion in a city in those days, one neighbor explained it to another in words to this effect. They say that Jesus of Nazareth is come. Well, as I was saying, the doctor distributed medicine as long as he had any to distribute, and his reputation is mighty in Galilee this day. Among his patients was the child of the sheik's daughter, for even this poor ragged handful of sores and sin has its royal sheik, a poor old mummy that looked as if he would be more at home in a poor house than in the chief magistracy of this tribe of hopeless shirtless savages. The princess, I mean the sheik's daughter, was only thirteen or fourteen years old, and had a very sweet face and a pretty one. She was the only Syrian female we have seen yet who was not so sinfully ugly that she couldn't smile after ten o'clock Saturday night without breaking the Sabbath. Her child was a hard specimen, though. There wasn't enough of it to make a pie, and the poor little thing looked so pleadingly up at all who came near it, as if it had an idea that now was its chance or never, that we were filled with compassion, which was genuine and not put on. But this last new horse I have got is trying to break his neck over the tent-ropes, and I shall have to go out and anchor him. Jericho and I have parted company. The new horse is not much to boast of, I think. One of his hind legs bends the wrong way, and the other one is as straight and stiff as a tent-pole. Most of his teeth are gone, and he is as blind as bat. His nose has been broken at some time or other, and is arched like a culvert now. His under-lip hangs down like a camel's, and his ears are chopped off close to his head. I had some trouble at first to find a name for him, but I finally concluded to call him Balbec, because he is such a magnificent ruin. I cannot keep from talking about my horses, because I have a very long and tedious journey before me, and they naturally occupy my thoughts about as much as matters of apparently much greater importance. We satisfied our pilgrims by making those hard rides from Balbec to Damascus, but Dan's horse and Jack's were so crippled we had to leave them behind and get fresh animals for them. The dragoman says Jack's horse died. I swapped horses with Mohammed, the kingly-looking Egyptian who is our Ferguson's lieutenant. By Ferguson I mean our dragoman Abraham, of course. I did not take this horse on account of his personal appearance, but because I have not seen his back. I do not wish to see it. I have seen the backs of all the other horses, and found most of them covered with dreadful saddle-boils, which I know have not been washed or doctored for years. The idea of riding all day long over such ghastly inquisitions of torture is sickening. My horse must be like the others, but I have at least the consolation of not knowing it to be so. I hope that in future I may be spared any more sentimental praises of the Arab's idolatry of his horse. In boyhood I longed to be an Arab of the desert, and have a beautiful mare, and call her Salim, or Benjamin, or Mohammed, and feed her with my own hands, and let her come into the tent, and teach her to caress me, and look fondly upon me with her great tender eyes. And I wished that a stranger might come at such a time, and offer me a hundred thousand dollars for her so that I could do like the other Arabs, hesitate, yearn for the money, but, overcome by my love for my mare, at last say, Part with thee, my beautiful one, never with my life. Away, tempter, I scorn thy gold, and then bound into the saddle and speed over the desert like the wind. But I recall those aspirations. If these Arabs be like the other Arabs, 
their love for their beautiful mares is a fraud. These of my acquaintance have no love for their horses, no sentiment of pity for them, and no knowledge of how to treat them or care for them. The Syrian saddle-blanket is a quilted mattress two or three inches thick. It is never removed from the horse, day or night. It gets full of dirt and hair, and becomes soaked with sweat. It is bound to breed sores. These pirates never think of washing a horse's back. They do not shelter the horses in the tents, either. They must stay out and take the weather as it comes. Look at poor cropped and dilapidated Balbec, and weep for the sentiment that has been wasted upon the Selims of romance. End of chapter 45 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain Chapter 46 Dan, Bashan, Genesaret, A Notable Panorama, Smallness of Palestine, Scraps of History, Character of the Country, Bedouin Shepherds, Glimpses of the Hoary Past, Mr. Grimes' Bedouins, A Battle, Ground of Joshua, That Soldier's Manner of Fighting, Barak's Battle, the necessity of unlearning some things. Desolation. About an hour's ride over a rough, rocky road, half flooded with water, and through a forest of oaks and bashan, brought us to Dan. From a little mound here in the plain issues a broad stream of limpid water, and forms a large shallow pool, and then rushes furiously onward, augmented in volume. This puddle is an important source of the Jordan. Its banks and those of the brook are respectably adorned with blooming oleanders, but the unutterable beauty of the spot will not throw a well-balanced man into convulsions, as the Syrian books of travel would lead one to suppose. From the spot I am speaking of, a cannon-ball would carry beyond the confines of Holy Land, and light upon profane ground three miles away. We were only one little hour's travel within the borders of Holy Land. We had hardly begun to appreciate yet that we were standing upon any different sort of earth than that we had always been used to, and see how the historic names began already to cluster. Dan, Bashan, Lake Hule, the sources of Jordan, the Sea of Galilee. They were all in sight but the last, and it was not far away. The little township of Bashan was once the kingdom so famous in scriptures for its bulls and its oaks. Lake Hule is the biblical waters of Merom. Dan was the northern, and Beersheba the southern limit of Palestine, hence the expression from Dan to Beersheba. It is equivalent to our phrases from Maine to Texas, from Baltimore to San Francisco. Our expression and that of the Israelites both mean the same, great distance. With their slow camels and asses it was about a seven days' journey from Dan to Beersheba say a hundred and fifty or sixty miles. It was the entire length of their country, and was not to be undertaken without great preparation and much ceremony. When the prodigal travelled to a far country, it is not likely that he went more than eighty or ninety miles. Palestine is only from forty to sixty miles wide. The state of Missouri could be split into three Palestines, and there would then be enough material left for part of another, possibly a whole one. 
From Baltimore to San Francisco is several thousand miles, but it will be only a seven days' journey in the cars when I am two or three years older. The railroad has been completed since the above was written. If I live, I shall necessarily have to go across the continent every now and then in those cars, but one journey from Dan to Beersheba will be sufficient, no doubt. It must be the most trying of the two. Therefore, if we chance to discover that from Dan to Beersheba seemed a mighty stretch of country to the Israelites, let us not be airy with them, but reflect that it was and is a mighty stretch when one cannot traverse it by rail. The small mound I have mentioned a while ago was once occupied by the Phoenician city of Laish. A party of filibusters from Zora and Eshol captured the place, and lived there in a free and easy way, worshipping gods of their own manufacture, and stealing idols from their neighbors whenever they wore their own out. Jeroboam set up a golden calf here to fascinate his people and keep them from making dangerous trips to Jerusalem to worship which might result in a return to their rightful allegiance. With all respect for those ancient Israelites, I cannot overlook the fact that they were not always virtuous enough to withstand the seductions of a golden calf. Human nature has not changed much since then. Some forty centuries ago the city of Sodom was pillaged by the Arab princes of Mesopotamia, and among other prisoners they seized upon the patriarch Lot, and brought him here on their way to their own possessions. They brought him to Dan, and Father Abraham, who was pursuing them, crept softly in at dead of night, among the whispering oleanders and under the shadows of the stately oaks, and fell upon the slumbering victors, and startled them from their dreams with a clash of steel. He captured Lot and all the other plunder. We moved on. We were now in a green valley five or six miles wide and fifteen long. The streams which are called the sources of the Jordan flow through it to Lake Hule, a shallow pond three miles in diameter, and from the southern extremity of the lake the concentrated Jordan flows out. The lake is surrounded by a broad marsh, grown with reeds. Between the marsh and the mountains which wall the valley is a respectable strip of fertile land. At the end of the valley, toward Dan, as much as half the land is solid and fertile, and watered by Jordan's sources. There is enough of it to make a farm. It almost warrants the enthusiasm of the spies of that rabble of adventurers who captured Dan. They said, We have seen the land, and behold, it is very good, a place where there is no want of anything that is in the earth. Their enthusiasm was at least warranted by the fact that they had never seen a country as good as this. There was enough of it for the ample support of their six hundred men and their families, too. When we got fairly down on the level part of the Danite farm, we came to places where we could actually run our horses. It was a notable circumstance. We had been painfully clambering over interminable hills and rocks for days together, and when we suddenly came upon this astonishing piece of rockless plain, every man drove the spurs into his horse, and sped away with a velocity he could surely enjoy to the utmost, but could never hope to comprehend in Syria. Here were evidences of cultivation, a rare sight in this country, an acre or two of rich soil studded with last season's dead cornstalks of the thickness of your thumb and very wide apart. But in such a land it was a thrilling spectacle. Close to it was a stream, and on its banks a great herd of curious-looking Syrian goats and sheep were gratefully eating gravel. 
I do not state this as a petrified fact, I only suppose they were eating gravel, because there did not appear to be anything else for them to eat. The shepherds that tended them were the very picture of Joseph and his brethren, I have no doubt in the world. They were tall, muscular, and very dark-skinned Bedouins, with inky black beards. They had firm lips, unquailing eyes, and a kingly stateliness of bearing. They wore the party-colored half-bonnet, half-hood, with fringed ends falling upon their shoulders, and the full flowing robe barbed with broad black stripes, the dress one sees in all pictures of the swarthy sons of the desert. These chaps would sell their younger brothers if they had a chance, I think. They have the manners, the customs, the dress, the occupation, and the loose principles of the ancient stock. They attacked our camp last night, and I bear them no good will. They had with them the pygmy jackasses one sees all over Syria, and remembers in all pictures of the flight into Egypt, where Mary and the young child are riding, and Joseph is walking alongside, towering high above the little donkey's shoulders. But really, here the man rides and carries the child, as a general thing, and the woman walks. The customs have not changed since Joseph's time. We would not have in our houses a picture representing Joseph riding and Mary walking. We would see profanation in it but a Syrian Christian would not. I know that hereafter the picture I first spoke of will look odd to me. We could not stop to rest two or three hours out from our camp, of course, albeit the brook was beside us, so we went on an hour longer. We saw water then, but nowhere in all the waste around was there a foot of shade, and we were scorching to death, like unto the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Nothing in the Bible is more beautiful than that and surely there is no place we have wandered to that is able to give it such touching expression as this blistering, naked, treeless land. Here you do not stop just when you please, but when you can. We found water, but no shade. We travelled on and found a tree at last, but no water. We rested and lunched, and came on to this place, Ain Belaha. The boys call it Baldwinsville. It was a very short day's run, but the dragoman does not want to go further, and has invented a plausible lie about the country beyond this being infested by ferocious Arabs, who would make sleeping in their midst a dangerous pastime. Well, they ought to be dangerous. They carry a rusty old weather-beaten flintlock gun, with a barrel that is longer than themselves. It has no sights on it, it will not carry farther than a brickback, and is not half so certain and the great sash they wear in many a fold around their waists has two or three absurd old horse-pistols in it that are rusty from eternal disuse, weapons that would hang fire just about long enough for you to walk out of range, and then burst and blow the Arab's head off. Exceedingly dangerous these sons of the desert are. It used to make my blood run cold to read William C. Grimes' hair-breadth escapes from Bedouins, but I think I could read them now without a tremor. He never said he was attacked by Bedouins, I believe, or was ever treated uncivilly. But then, in about every other chapter he discovered them approaching, anyhow, and he had a blood-curdling fashion of working up the peril, and of wondering how his relations far away would feel could they see their poor wandering boy with his weary feet and his dim eyes in such fearful danger, and of thinking for the last time of the old homestead and the dear old church and the cow and those things and of finally straightening his form to its utmost height in the saddle, drawing his trusty revolver, and then dashing the spurs into Mohammed, and sweeping down upon the ferocious enemy determined to sell his life as dearly as possible. 
True, the Bedouins never did anything to him when he arrived, and never had any intention of doing anything to him in the first place, and wondered what in the mischief he was making all that to do about. But still I could not divest myself of the idea, somehow, that a frightful peril had been escaped through that man's daredevil bravery, and so I never could read about William C. Grimes' Bedouins and sleep comfortably afterward. But I believe the Bedouins to be a fraud now. I have seen the monster and I can outrun him. I shall never be afraid of his daring to stand behind his own gun and discharge it. About five hundred years before Christ, this campground of ours by the waters of Merom was the scene of one of Joshua's exterminating battles. Jabin, king of Hazor, up yonder above Dan, called all the sheiks about him together, with their hosts, to make ready for Israel's terrible general who was approaching. And when all these kings were met together, they came and pitched together by the waters of Merom, to fight against Israel. And they went out, they and all their hosts with them, much people, even as the sand that is upon the seashore for multitude, etc. But Joshua fell upon them, and utterly destroyed them, root and branch. That was his usual policy in war. He never left any chance for newspaper controversies about who won the battle. He made this valley, so quiet now, a reeking slaughter-pen. Somewhere in this part of the country, I do not know exactly where, Israel fought another bloody battle a hundred years later. Deborah the prophetess told Barak to take ten thousand men and sally forth against another king of Jabin, who had been doing something. Barak came down from Mount Tabor, twenty or twenty-five miles from here, and gave battle to Jabin's forces, who were in command of Sisera. Barak won the fight, and while he was making the victory complete by the usual method of exterminating the remnant of the defeated host, Sisera fled away on foot, and when he was nearly exhausted by fatigue and thirst, one Jael, a woman he seems to have been acquainted with, invited him to come into her tent and rest himself. The weary soldier acceded readily enough, and Jael put him to bed. He said he was very thirsty, and asked his generous preserver to get him a cup of water. She brought him some milk, and he drank of it gratefully, and lay down again, to forget in pleasant dreams his lost battle and his humbled pride. Presently, when he was asleep, she came softly in with a hammer, and drove a hideous tent-pen down through his brain. For he was fast asleep and weary, so he died. Such is the touching language of the Bible. The song of Deborah and Barak praises Jael for the memorable service she had rendered, in an exultant strain. Blessed above women shall Jael, the wife of Hebar the Kenite, be. Blessed shall she be above women in the tent. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought forth butter in a lordly dish. She put her hand to the nail, and her right hand to the workman's hammer. And with the hammer she smote Sisera. She smote off his head when she had pierced and stricken through his temples. At her feet he bowed, he fell, he lay down. At her feet he bowed, he fell. Where he bowed, there he fell down dead. Stirring scenes like these occur in this valley no more. There is not a solitary village throughout its whole extent, not for thirty miles in either direction. There are two or three small clusters of Bedouin tents, but not a single permanent habitation. One may ride ten miles hereabout, and not see ten human beings. To this region one of the prophecies is applied. I will bring the land into desolation, and your enemies which dwell therein shall be astonished at it. 
and I will scatter you among the heathen, and I will draw out a sword after you, and your land shall be desolate, and your cities waste. No man can stand here by deserted Ain Melaha and say the prophecy has not been fulfilled. In a verse from the Bible which I have quoted above occurs the phrase, All these kings. It attracted my attention in a moment, because it carries to my mind such a vastly different significance from what it always did at home. I can see easily enough that if I wish to profit by this tour, and come to a correct understanding of the matters of interest connected with it, I must studiously and faithfully unlearn a great many things I have somehow absorbed concerning Palestine. I must begin a system of reduction. Like my grapes which the spies bore out of the promised land, I have got everything in Palestine on too large a scale. Some of my ideas were wild enough. The word Palestine always brought to my mind a vague suggestion of a country as large as the United States. I do not know why, but such was the case. I suppose it was because I could not conceive of a small country having so large a history. I think I was a little surprised to find that the Grand Sultan of Turkey was a man of only ordinary size. I must try to reduce my ideas of Palestine to a more reasonable shape. One gets large impressions in boyhood sometimes, which he has to fight against all his life. All these kings! When I used to read that in Sunday school, it suggested to me the several kings of such countries as England, France, Spain, Germany, Russia, etc., arrayed in splendid robes ablaze with jewels, marching in grave procession, with scepters of gold in their hands and flashing crowns upon their heads. But here in Ain Melaha, after coming through Syria, and after giving serious study to the character and customs of the country, the phrase, all these kings, loses its grandeur. It suggests only a parcel of petty chiefs ill-clad and ill-conditioned savages, much like our Indians, who lived in full sight of each other, and whose kingdoms were large when they were five miles square and contained two thousand souls. The combined monarchies of the thirty kings destroyed by Joshua on one of his famous campaigns only covered an area about equal to four of our counties of ordinary size. The poor old sheik we saw at Caesarea Philippi, with his ragged band of a hundred followers, would have been called a king in those ancient times. It is seven in the morning, and as we are in the country, the grass ought to be sparkling with dew, the flowers enriching the air with their fragrance, and the birds singing in the trees. But alas, there is no dew here, nor flowers, nor birds, nor trees. There is a plain and an unshaded lake, and beyond them some barren mountains. The tents are tumbling, the Arabs are quarrelling like dogs and cats, as usual, the campground is strewn with packages and bundles. The labor of packing them upon the backs of the mules is progressing with great activity. The horses are saddled, the umbrellas are out, and in ten minutes we shall mount, and the long procession will move again. The white city of Melaha, resurrected for a moment out of the dead centuries, will have disappeared again, and left no sign. End of chapter 46 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 47. Jack's Adventure. Joseph's Pit. The Story of Joseph. Joseph's Magnanimity and Esau's. The Sacred Lake of Genesaret. Enthusiasm of the Pilgrims. 
Why we did not sail on Galilee. About Capernaum. Concerning the Saviour's brothers and sisters. Journeying through Magdala. We traverse some miles of desolate country whose soil is rich enough, but is given over wholly to weeds, a silent, mournful expanse, wherein we saw only three persons, Arabs, with nothing on but a long, coarse shirt like the tow-linen shirts, which used to form the only summer garment of little negro boys on southern plantations. Shepherds they were, and they charmed their flocks with the traditional shepherd's pipe a reed instrument that made music as exquisitely infernal as these same Arabs create when they sing. In their pipes lingered no echo of the wonderful music the shepherd forefathers heard in the plains of Bethlehem, what time the angels sang, Peace on earth, good will to men. Part of the ground we came over was not ground at all, but rocks, cream-colored rocks, worn smooth as if by water with seldom an edge or a corner on them, but scooped out, honeycombed, bored out with eye-holes, and thus wrought into all manner of quaint shapes, among which the uncouth imitation of skulls was frequent. Over this part of the route were occasional remains of an old Roman road like the Appian Way, whose paving-stones still clung to their places with Roman tenacity. Grey lizards, those heirs of ruin, of sepulchres and desolation, glided in and out among the rocks, or lay still and sunned themselves. Where prosperity has reigned and fallen, where glory has flamed and gone out, where beauty has dwelt and passed away, where gladness was and sorrow is, where the pomp of life has been, and silence and death brood in its high places, there this reptile makes his home, and mocks at human vanity. His coat is the color of ashes and ashes are the symbol of hopes that have perished, of aspirations that came to naught, of loves that are buried. If he could speak, he would say, Build temples, I will lord it in their ruins, build palaces, I will inhabit them, erect empires, I will inherit them, bury your beautiful, I will watch the worms at their work, and you who stand here and moralize over me, I will crawl over your corpse at the last. A few ants were in this desert place, but merely to spend the summer. They brought their provisions from Ain Melaha, eleven miles. Jack is not very well to-day. It is easy to see, but boy as he is, he is too much of a man to speak of it. He exposed himself to the sun too much yesterday, but since it came of his earnest desire to learn, and to make this journey as useful as the opportunities will allow, no one seeks to discourage him by fault-finding. We missed him an hour from the camp, and then found him some distance away by the edge of a brook, and with no umbrella to protect him from the fierce sun. If he had been used to going without his umbrella it would have been well enough, of course, but he was not. He was just in the act of throwing a clod at a mud-turtle which was sunning itself on a small log in the brook. We said, "'Don't do that, Jack. What do you want to harm him for? What has he done?' Well, then, I won't kill him, but I ought to, because he is a fraud. We asked him why, but he said it was no matter. We asked him why once or twice, as we walked back to the camp, but he still said it was no matter. But late at night, when he was sitting in a thoughtful mood on the bed, we asked him again, and he said, Well, it don't matter. 
I don't mind it now, but I did not like it today, you know, because I don't tell anything that isn't so, and I don't think the Colonel ought to either. But he did. He told us at prayer in the Pilgrim's tent last night, and he seemed as if he was reading it out of the Bible, too, about this country flowing with milk and honey, and about the voice of the turtle being heard in the land. I thought that was drawing a little strong, about the turtles, anyhow, but I asked Mr. Church if it was so, and he said it was, and what Mr. Church tells me I believe. But I sat there and watched that turtle nearly an hour to-day, and I almost burned up in the sun, but I never heard him sing. I believe I sweated a double handful of sweat. I know I did, because it got in my eyes, and it was running down over my nose all the time, and you know my pants are tighter than anybody else's. Paris foolishness! and the buckskin seat of them got wet with sweat, and then got dry again, and began to draw up and pinch and tear loose. It was awful, but I never heard him sing. Finally I said, This is a fraud. That is what it is. It is a fraud. And if I had had any sense I might have known a cursed mud-turtle couldn't sing. And then I said, I don't wish to be hard on this fellow, and I will just give him ten minutes to commence. Ten minutes. And then if he don't, down goes his building but he didn't commence, you know. I had stayed there all that time, thinking maybe he might, pretty soon, because he kept on raising his head up, and letting it down, and drawing the skin over his eyes for a minute, and then opening them out again, as if he was trying to study up something to sing. But just as the ten minutes were up, and I was all beat out and blistered, he laid his blamed head down on a knot and went fast asleep. It was a little hard, after you had waited so long. I should think so. I said, well, if you won't sing, you shan't sleep, anyway. And if you fellows had let me alone, I would have made him shin out of Galilee quicker than any turtle ever did yet. But it isn't any matter now. Let it go. The skin is all off the back of my neck. About ten in the morning we halted at Joseph's Pit. This is a ruined khan of the Middle Ages, in one of whose side courts is a great walled and arched pit with water in it and this pit, one tradition says, is the one Joseph's brethren cast him into. A more authentic tradition, aided by the geography of the country, places the pit in Dothan, some two days' journey from here. However, since there are many who believe in this present pit as the true one, it has its interest. It is hard to make a choice of the most beautiful passage in a book which is so gemmed with beautiful passages as the Bible, but it is certain that not many things within its lid may take rank above the exquisite story of Joseph. Who taught those ancient writers their simplicity of language, their felicity of expression, their pathos, and, above all, their faculty of sinking themselves entirely out of sight of the reader, and making the narrative stand out alone and seem to tell itself? Shakespeare is always present when one reads his book. Macaulay is present when we follow the march of his stately sentences. But the Old Testament writers are hidden from view. If the pit I have been speaking of is the right one, a scene transpired there long ages ago, which is familiar to us all in pictures. The sons of Jacob had been pasturing their flocks near there. Their father grew uneasy at their long absence, and sent Joseph, his favorite, to see if anything had gone wrong with them. He travelled six or seven days' journey. He was only seventeen years old, and, boy-like, he toiled through that long stretch of the vilest, rockiest, dustiest country in Asia, arrayed in the pride of his heart, his beautiful claw-hammer coat of many colors. Joseph was the favorite, and that was one crime in the eyes of his brethren. 
He had dreamed dreams, and interpreted them to foreshadow his elevation far above all his family in the far future, and that was another. He was dressed well, and had doubtless displayed the harmless vanity of youth in keeping the fact prominently before his brothers. These were crimes his elders fretted over among themselves, and proposed to punish when the opportunity should offer. When they saw him coming up from the Sea of Galilee, they recognized him, and were glad. They said, Lo, here is this dreamer, let us kill him. But Reuben pleaded for his life, and they spared it. But they seized the boy, and stripped the hated coat from his back, and pushed him into the pit. They intended to let him die there, but Reuben intended to liberate him secretly. However, while Reuben was away for a little while, the brethren sold Joseph to some Ishmaelitish merchants who were journeying towards Egypt. Such is the history of the pit, and the self-same pit is there in that place even to this day, and there it will remain until the next detachment of image-breakers and tomb-desecrators arrives from the Quaker City excursion, and they will infallibly dig it up and carry it away with them. For behold, in them is no reverence for the solemn monuments of the past, and whithersoever they go, they destroy and spare not. Joseph became rich, distinguished, powerful, as the Bible expresses it, lord over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was the real king, the strength, the brain of the monarchy, though Pharaoh held the title. Joseph is one of the truly great men of the Old Testament, and he was the noblest and the manliest, save Esau. Why shall we not say a good word for the princely Bedouin? The only crime that can be brought against him is that he was unfortunate. Why must everybody praise Joseph's great-hearted generosity to his cruel brethren, without stint of fervent language, and fling only a reluctant bone of praise to Esau, for his still sublimer generosity to the brother who had wronged him? Jacob took advantage of Esau's consuming hunger to rob him of his birthright, and the great honor and consideration that belonged to the position. By treachery and falsehood he robbed him of his father's blessing, he made of him a stranger in his home, and a wanderer. Yet, after twenty years had passed away, and Jacob met Esau, and fell at his feet quaking with fear, and begging piteously to be spared the punishment he knew he deserved, what did that magnificent savage do? He fell upon his neck and embraced him. When Jacob, who was incapable of comprehending nobility of character, still doubting, still fearing, insisted upon finding grace with my lord, by the bribe of a present of cattle, what did the gorgeous son of the desert say? Nay, I have enough, my brother, keep that thou hast unto thyself. Esau found Jacob rich, beloved by wives and children, and travelling in state, with servants, herds of cattle, and trains of camels, but he himself was still the uncourted outcast this brother had made him. After thirteen years of romantic mystery the brethren who had wronged Joseph came strangers in a strange land, hungry and humble, to buy a little food. And being summoned to a palace charged with crime, they beheld in its owner their wronged brother. They were trembling beggars, he the lord of a mighty empire. What Joseph that ever lived would have thrown away such a chance to show off? Who stands first, outcast Esau forgiving Jacob in prosperity, or Joseph on a king's throne forgiving the ragged tremblers whose happy rascality placed him there. Just before we came to Joseph's pit, we had raised a hill, and there, a few miles before us, with not a tree or a shrub to interrupt the view, 
lay a vision which millions of worshippers in the far lands of the earth would give half their possessions to see, the sacred Sea of Galilee. Therefore we tarried only a short time at the pit. We rested the horses and ourselves, and felt for a few minutes the blessed shade of the ancient buildings. We were out of water, but the two or three scowling Arabs, with their long guns, who were idling about the place, said they had none, and that there was none in the vicinity. They knew there was a little brackish water in the pit, but they venerated a place made sacred by their ancestors' imprisonment too much to be willing to see Christian dogs drink from it. But Ferguson tied rags and handkerchiefs together till he made a rope long enough to lower a vessel to the bottom, and we drank, and then rode on. And in a short time we dismounted on those shores which the feet of the Saviour have made holy ground. At noon we took a swim in the Sea of Galilee, a blessed privilege in this roasting climate, and then lunched under a neglected old fig-tree at the fountain they call Ain et Tin, a hundred yards from ruined Capernaum. Every rivulet that gurgles out of the rocks and sands of this part of the world is dubbed with the title of Fountain, and people familiar with the Hudson, the Great Lakes, and the Mississippi fall into transports of admiration over them, and exhaust their powers of composition in writing their praises. If all the poetry and nonsense that have been discharged upon the fountains and the bland scenery of this region were collected in a book, it would make a most valuable volume to burn. During luncheon the pilgrim enthusiasts of our party, who had been so light-hearted and so happy ever since they touched holy ground that they did little but mutter incoherent rhapsodies, could scarcely eat, so anxious were they to take shipping and sail in very person upon the waters that had borne the vessels of the apostles. Their anxiety grew, and their excitement augmented with every fleeting moment, until my fears were aroused, and I began to have misgivings that, in their present condition, they might break recklessly loose from all considerations of prudence, and buy a whole fleet of ships to sail in, instead of hiring a single one for an hour, as quiet folk are wont to do. I trembled to think of the ruined purses this day's performances might result in. I could not help reflecting bodingly upon the intemperate zeal with which middle-aged men are apt to surfeit themselves upon a seductive folly which they have tasted for the first time. And yet I did not feel that I had a right to be surprised at the state of things which was giving me so much concern. These men had been taught from infancy to revere, almost to worship, the holy places whereon their happy eyes were resting now. For many and many a year this very picture had visited their thoughts by day, and floated through their dreams by night. To stand before it in the flesh, to see it as they saw it now, to sail upon the hallowed sea, and kiss the holy soil that compassed it about, these were aspirations they had cherished while a generation dragged its lagging seasons by, and left its furrows in their faces, and its frosts upon their hair. To look upon this picture, and sail upon this sea, they had forsaken home and its idols, and journeyed thousands and thousands of miles, in weariness and tribulation. What wonder that the sordid lights of workday prudence should pale before the glory of a hope like theirs, in the full splendor of its fruition! Let them squander millions! I said, who speaks of money at a time like this? In this frame of mind I followed, as fast as I could, the eager footsteps of the pilgrims, and stood upon the shore of the lake, and swelled, with hat and voice, the frantic hail they sent after the ship that was speeding by. It was a success. 
The toilers of the sea ran in and beached their bark. Joy sat upon every countenance. How much? Ask him how much, Ferguson. How much to take us all, eight of us, and you, to Bethsaida yonder, and to the mouth of Jordan, and to the place where the swine ran into the sea, quick, and we want to coast around everywhere, everywhere, all day long. I could sail a year in these waters, and tell him we'll stop at Magdala and finish at Tiberius. Ask him how much, anything, anything whatever. Tell him we don't care what the expense is. I said to myself I knew how it would be. Ferguson, interpreting, he says, two Napoleons, eight dollars. One or two countenances fell, then a pause. Too much. We'll give him one. I never shall know how it was. I shudder yet when I think how the place is given to miracles. But in a single instant of time, as it seemed to me, that ship was twenty paces from the shore, and speeding away like a frightened thing. Eight crestfallen creatures stood upon the shore, and oh, to think of it, this, this, after all that overmastering ecstasy. Oh, shameful, shameful ending, after such unseemly boasting! It was too much like, Ho, let me at him! followed by a prudent, Two of you hold him, one can hold me. Instantly there was a wailing and gnashing of teeth in the camp. The two Napoleons were offered, more if necessary, and pilgrims and dragomen shouted themselves hoarse with pleadings to the retreating boatmen to come back. But they sailed serenely away, and paid no further heed to pilgrims who had dreamed all their lives of some day skimming over the sacred waters of Galilee, and listening to its hallowed story in the whisperings of its waves, and had journeyed countless leagues to do it, and, and then concluded that the fare was too high. Impertinent Mohammedan Arabs, to think such things of gentlemen of another faith! Well, there was nothing to do but just submit and forego the privilege of voyaging on Gennesaret, after coming half round the globe to taste that pleasure. There was a time, when the Saviour taught here, that boats were plenty among the fishermen of the coasts, but boats and fishermen both are gone now, and old Josephus had a fleet of men-of-war in these waters eighteen centuries ago, a hundred and thirty bold canoes, but they also have passed away and left no sign. They battle here no more by sea, and the commercial marine of Galilee numbers only two small ships, just of a pattern with the little skiffs the disciples knew. One was lost to us for good, the other was miles away and far out of hail. So we mounted the horses and rode grimly on towards Magdala, cantering along in the edge of the water for want of the means of passing over it. How the pilgrims abused each other! Each said it was the other's fault, and each in turn denied it. No word was spoken by the sinners. Even the mildest sarcasm might have been dangerous at such a time. Sinners that have been kept down, and had examples held up to them, and suffered frequent lectures, and been so put upon in a moral way, and in the matter of going slow, and being serious, and bottling up slang, and so crowded in regard to the matter of being proper, and always and forever behaving, that their lives have become a burden to them would not lag behind pilgrims at such a time as this, and wink furtively and be joyful and commit other such crimes, because it would not occur to them to do it. Otherwise they would. But they did do it, though, and it did them a world of good to hear the pilgrims abuse each other, too. We took an unworthy satisfaction in seeing them fall out now and then, because it showed that they were only poor human people like us, after all. 
So we all rode down to Magdala, while the gnashing of teeth waxed and waned by turns, and harsh words troubled the holy calm of Galilee. Lest any man think I mean to be ill-natured when I talk about our pilgrims as I have been talking, I wish to say, in all sincerity, that I do not. I would not listen to lectures from men I did not like and could not respect, and none of these can say I ever took their lectures unkindly, or was restive under the infliction, or failed to try to profit by what they said to me. They are better men than I am. I can say that honestly. They are good friends of mine, too. And besides, if they did not wish to be stirred up occasionally in print, why in the mischief did they travel with me? They knew me. They knew my liberal way, that I like to give and take, when it is for me to give and other people to take. When one of them threatened to leave me in Damascus when I had the cholera, he had no real idea of doing it. I know his passionate nature and the good impulses that underlie it. And did I not overhear Church, another pilgrim, say he did not care who went or who stayed, he would stand by me till I walked out of Damascus on my own feet, or was carried out in a coffin, if it was a year? And do I not include Church every time I abuse the pilgrims? And would I be likely to speak ill-naturedly of him? I wish to stir them up and make them healthy. That is all. We had left Capernaum behind us. It was only a shapeless ruin. It bore no semblance to a town, and had nothing about it to suggest that it had ever been a town. But all desolate and unpeopled as it was, it was a lustrous ground. From it sprang that tree of Christianity whose broad arms overshadow so many distant lands to-day. After Christ was tempted of the devil in the desert, he came here and began his teachings, and during the three or four years he lived afterward, this place was his home almost altogether. He began to heal the sick, and his fame soon spread so widely that sufferers came from Syria and beyond Jordan, and even from Jerusalem several days' journey away, to be cured of their diseases. Here he healed the centurion's servant, and Peter's mother-in-law, and multitudes of the lame and the blind and persons possessed of devils. And here also he raised Jairus's daughter from the dead. He went into a ship with his disciples, and when they roused him from sleep in the midst of a storm, he quieted the winds and lulled the troubled sea to rest with his voice. He passed over to the other side, a few miles away, and relieved two men of devils, which passed into some swine. After his return he called Matthew from the receipt of customs, performed some cures, and created scandals by eating with publicans and sinners. Then he went healing and teaching through Galilee, and even journeyed to Tyre and Sidon. He chose the twelve disciples, and sent them abroad to preach the new gospel. He worked miracles in Bethsaida and Chorazin, villages two or three miles from Capernaum. It was near one of them that the miraculous draft of fishes is supposed to have been taken, and it was in the desert places near the other that he fed the thousands by the miracles of the loaves and fishes. He cursed them both, and Capernaum also, for not repenting, after all the great works he had done in their midst, and prophesied against them. They are all in ruins now, which is gratifying to the pilgrims, for, as usual, they fit the eternal words of gods to the evanescent things of this earth. Christ, it is more probable, referred to the people, not their shabby villages of wigwams. He said it would be sad for them at the day of judgment, and what business have mud-hovels at the day of judgment? It would not affect the prophecy in the least. It would neither prove it nor disprove it. 
if these towns were splendid cities now instead of the almost vanished ruins they are. Christ visited Magdala, which is near by Capernaum, and he also visited Caesarea Philippi. He went up to his old home at Nazareth, and saw his brothers Joseph, and Judas, and James, and Simon, those persons who, being own brothers to Jesus Christ, one would expect to hear mentioned sometimes. Yet who ever saw their names in a newspaper, or heard them from a pulpit? Who ever inquires what manner of youths they were, and whether they slept with Jesus, played with Him, and romped about Him, quarreled with Him concerning toys and trifles, struck Him in anger, not suspecting what He was? Who ever wonders what they thought when they saw Him come back to Nazareth a celebrity, and looked long at His unfamiliar face to make sure, and then said, It is Jesus? Who wonders what passed in their minds when they saw this brother? who was only a brother to them, however much he might be to others, a mysterious stranger who was a god, and a, had stood face to face with God above the clouds, doing strange miracles with crowds of astonished people for witnesses. Who wonders if the brothers of Jesus asked him to come home with them, and said his mother and his sisters were grieved at his long absence, and would be wild with delight to see his face again? Who ever gives a thought to the sisters of Jesus at all? Yet he had sisters, and memories of them must have stolen into his mind often when he was ill-treated among strangers, when he was homeless, and said he had not where to lay his head, when all deserted him, even Peter, and he stood alone among his enemies. Christ did few miracles in Nazareth, and stayed but a little while. The people said, This the Son of God! <laughs> Why, his father is nothing but a carpenter. We know the family. We see them every day. Are not his brothers named so-and-so, and his sisters so-and-so? And is not his mother the person they call Mary? Well, this is absurd. He did not curse his home, but he shook its dust from his feet, and went away. Capernaum lies close to the edge of the little sea, in a small plain some five miles long, and a mile or two wide, which is mildly adorned with oleanders, which look all the better contrasted with the bald hills, and the howling deserts which surround them. But they are not as deliriously beautiful as the books paint them. If one be calm and resolute, he can look upon their comeliness and live. One of the most astonishing things that have yet fallen under our observation is the exceedingly small portion of the earth from which sprang the now flourishing plant of Christianity. The longest journey our Saviour ever performed was from here to Jerusalem, about one hundred to one hundred and twenty miles. The next longest was from here to Sidon, say about sixty or seventy miles. Instead of being wide apart, as American appreciation of distances would naturally suggest, the places made most particularly celebrated by the presence of Christ are nearly all right here in full view, and within cannon-shot of Capernaum, Leaving out two or three short journeys of the Saviour, he spent his life, preached his gospel, and performed his miracles within a compass no larger than an ordinary county in the United States. It is as much as I can do to comprehend this stupefying fact. How it wears a man out to have to read up a hundred pages of history every two or three miles, for verily the celebrated localities of Palestine occur that close together. How wearily, how bewilderingly they swarm about your path! In due time we reach the ancient village of Magdala. End of chapter 47
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 48. Curious Specimens of Art and Architecture. Public Reception of the Pilgrims. Mary Magdalene's House. Tiberius and its Queer Inhabitants. The Sacred Sea of Galilee. Galilee by Night. Magdala is not a beautiful place. It is thoroughly Syrian, and that is to say that it is thoroughly ugly, and cramped, squalid, uncomfortable, and filthy. Just the style of cities that have adorned the country since Adam's time, as all writers have labored hard to prove, and have succeeded. The streets of Magdala are anywhere from three to six feet wide, and reeking with uncleanliness. The houses are from five to seven feet high, and all built upon one arbitrary plan, the ungraceful form of a dry-goods box. The sides are daubed with a smooth white plaster, and tastefully frescoed aloft, and alow with discs of camel-dung placed there to dry. This gives the edifice the romantic appearance of having been riddled with cannon-balls, and imparts to it a very warlike aspect. When the artist has arranged his materials with an eye to just proportion, the small and the large flakes in alternate rows, and separated by carefully considered intervals, I know of nothing more cheerful to look upon than a spirited Syrian fresco. The flat, plastered roof is garnished by picturesque stacks of fresco materials, which, having become thoroughly dried and cured, are placed there where it will be convenient. It is used for fuel. There is no timber of any consequence in Palestine none at all to waste upon fires, and neither are there any mines of coal. If my description has been intelligible, you will perceive now that a square, flat-roofed hovel, neatly frescoed, with its wall-tops gallantly bastioned and turreted with dried camel-refuse, gives to a landscape a feature that is exceedingly festive and picturesque, especially if one is careful to remember to stick in a cat wherever about the premises there is room for a cat to sit. There are no windows to a Syrian hut, and no chimneys. When I used to read that they led a bedridden man down through the roof of a house in Capernaum to get him into the presence of the Saviour, I generally had a three-story brick in my mind, and marveled that they did not break his neck with a strange experiment. I perceive now, however, that they might have taken him by the heels and thrown him clear over the house without discommoding him very much. Palestine has not changed any since those days, in manners, customs, architecture, or people. As we rode into Magdala, not a soul was visible, but the ring of the horses' hoofs roused the stupid population, and they all came trotting out, old men and old women, boys and girls, the blind, the crazy, and the crippled, all in ragged, soiled, and scanty raiment, and all abject beggars by nature, instinct, and education. How the vermin-tortured vagabonds did swarm! How they showed their scars and sores, and piteously pointed to their maimed and crooked limbs, and begged with their pleading eyes for charity! We had invoked a spirit we could not lay. They hung to the horses' tails, clung to their manes and the stirrups, closed in on every side in scorn of dangerous hoofs, and of their infidel throats, with one accord, burst an agonizing and most infernal chorus. Hawaji bookshish, Hawaji bookshish, Hawaji bookshish, bookshish, bookshish. 
I never was in a storm like that before. As we paid the bookshish out to the sore-eyed children and brown buxom girls with repulsively tattooed lips and chins, we filed through the town and by many an exquisite fresco till we came to a bramble-infested enclosure and a Roman-looking ruin which had been the veritable dwelling of St. Mary Magdalene, the friend and follower of Jesus. The guide believed it, and so did I. I could not well do otherwise, with the house right there before my eyes as plain as day. The pilgrims took down portions of the front wall for specimens, as is their honored custom, and then we departed. We are camped in this place now, just within the city walls of Tiberius. We went into the town before nightfall, and looked at its people. We cared nothing about its houses. Its people are best examined at a distance. They are particularly uncomely Jews, Arabs, and Negroes. Squalor and poverty are the pride of Tiberius. The young women wear their dower strung upon a strong wire that curves downward from the top of the head to the jaw. Turkish silver coins which they have raked together or inherited. Most of these maidens were not wealthy, but some few had been very kindly dealt with by fortune. I saw heiresses there, worth in their own right, worth, well, I suppose I might venture to say, as much as nine dollars and a half. But such cases are rare. When you come across one of these, she naturally puts on airs. She will not ask for bucksheesh. She will not even permit of undue familiarity. She assumes a crushing dignity, and goes on serenely practicing with her fine-tooth comb, and quoting poetry just the same as if you were not present at all. Some people cannot stand prosperity. They say that the long-nosed, lanky, dyspeptic-looking body-snatchers, with the indescribable hats on, and a long curl dangling down in front of each ear, are the old, familiar, self-righteous Pharisees we read of in the Scriptures. Verily, they look it. Judging merely by their general style, and without other evidence, one might easily suspect that self-righteousness was their specialty. From various authorities I have culled information concerning Tiberius. It was built by Herod Antipas, the murderer of John the Baptist, and named after the Emperor Tiberius. It is believed that it stands upon the site of what must have been, ages ago, a city of considerable architectural pretensions, judging by the fine porphyry pillars that are scattered through Tiberius, and down the lake shore southward. These were fluted once, and yet, although the stone is about as hard as iron, the flutings are almost worn away. These pillars are small, and doubtless the edifices they adorned were distinguished more for elegance than grandeur. This modern town, Tiberius, is only mentioned in the New Testament, never in the Old. The Sanhedrim met here last, and for three hundred years Tiberius was the metropolis of the Jews in Palestine. It is one of the four holy cities of the Israelites, and is to them what Mecca is to the Mohammedan, and Jerusalem to the Christian. It has been the abiding-place of many learned and famous Jewish rabbins. They lie buried here, and near them lie also twenty-five thousand of their faith, who travelled far to be near them, while they lived, and lie with them when they die. The great rabbi Ben Israel spent three years here in the early part of the third century. He is dead now. The celebrated Sea of Galilee is not so large a sea as Lake Tahoe. I measure all lakes by Tahoe, partly because I am far more familiar with it than with any other, and partly because I have such a high admiration for it, and such a world of pleasant recollections of it, 
that it is very nearly impossible for me to speak of lakes and not mention it. By a good deal. It is just about two-thirds as large. And when we come to speak of beauty, this sea is no more to be compared to Tahoe than a meridian of longitude is to a rainbow. The dim waters of this pool cannot suggest the limpid brilliancy of Tahoe, these low, shaven, yellow hillocks of rocks and sand, so devoid of perspective, cannot suggest the grand peaks that compass Tahoe like a wall, and whose ribbed and chasmed fronts are clad with stately pines that seem to grow small and smaller as they climb, till one might fancy them reduced to weeds and shrubs far upward, where they join the everlasting snows. Silence and solitude brood over Tahoe, and silence and solitude brood also over this lake of Genesaret. But the solitude of the one is as cheerful and fascinating as the solitude of the other is dismal and repellent. In the early morning one watches the silent battle of dawn and darkness upon the waters of Tahoe with a placid interest, but when the shadows sulk away and one by one the hidden beauties of the shore unfold themselves in the full splendor of noon, when the still surface is belted like a rainbow with broad bars of blue and green and white half the distance from circumference to center, when in the lazy summer afternoon he lies in a boat far out to where the dead blue of the deep water begins, and smokes the pipe of peace, and idly winks at the distant crags and patches of snow from under his cap-brim, when the boat drifts shoreward to the white water, and he lolls over the gunwale, and gazes by the hour down through the crystal depths, and notes the colors of the pebbles, and reviews the finny armies gliding in procession a hundred feet below, when at night he sees moon and stars, mountain ridges feathered with pines, jutting white capes, bold promontories, grand sweeps of rugged scenery topped with bald glimmering peaks, all magnificently pictured in the polished mirror of the lake, in richest, softest detail, the tranquil interest that was born with the morning deepens and deepens, by sure degrees, till it culminates at last in resistless fascination. It is solitude, for birds and squirrels on the shore and fishes in the water are all the creatures that are near to make it otherwise, but it is not the sort of solitude to make one dreary. Come to Galilee for that. If these unpeopled deserts, these rusty mounds of barrenness, that never, never, never do shake the glare from their harsh outlines, and fade and faint into vague perspective, that melancholy ruin of Capernaum, this stupid village of Tiberius, slumbering under its six funereal plumes of palms, yonder desolate declivity where the swine of the miracle ran down into the sea, and doubtless thought it was better to swallow a devil or two and get drowned into the bargain than have to live longer in such a place, this cloudless, blistering sky, this solemn, sailless, tintless lake, reposing within its brim of yellow hills and low, steep banks, and looking just as expressionless and unpoetical, when we leave its sublime history out of the question, as any metropolitan reservoir in Christendom. If these things are not food for rock-me-to-sleep, mother, none exist, I think. But I should not offer the evidence for the prosecution and leave the defense unheard. William C. Grimes deposes as follows. We had taken ship to go over to the other side. The sea was not more than six miles wide. Of the beauty of the scene, however, I cannot say enough. 
nor can I imagine where those travellers carry their eyes who have described the scenery of the lake as tame or uninteresting. The first great characteristic of it is the deep basin in which it lies. This is from three to four hundred feet deep on all sides except at the lower end, and the sharp slope of the banks, which are all of the richest green, is broken and diversified by the wadis and water-courses which work their way down through the sides of the basin, forming dark chasms or light sunny valleys. Near Tiberias these banks are rocky, and ancient sepulchres open in them, with their doors toward the water. They selected grand spots, as did the Egyptians of old, for burial-places, as if they designed that when the voice of God should reach the sleepers, they should walk forth and open their eyes on scenes of glorious beauty. On the east the wild and desolate mountains contrast finely with the deep blue lake, and toward the north sublime and majestic Hermon looks down on the sea, lifting his white crown to heaven with the pride of a hill that has seen the departing footsteps of a hundred generations. On the north-east shore of the sea was a single tree, and this is the only tree of any size visible from the water of the lake, except a few lonely palms in the city of Tiberias and by its solitary position attracts more attention than would a forest. The whole appearance of the scene is precisely what we would expect and desire the scenery of Genesaret to be. Grand beauty, but quite calm. The very mountains are calm. It is an ingeniously written description, and well calculated to deceive. But if the paint and the ribbons and the flowers be stripped from it, a skeleton will be found beneath. So stripped, there remains a lake six miles wide and neutral in color, with steep green banks, unrelieved by shrubbery, at one end bare, unsightly rocks with almost invisible holes in them of no consequence to the picture. Eastward, wild and desolate mountains—low, desolate hills, he should have said. In the north, a mountain called Hermon, with snow on it, peculiarity of the picture, calmness its prominent features, one tree. No ingenuity could make such a picture beautiful to one's actual vision. I claim the right to correct misstatements, and have so corrected the color of the water in the above recapitulation. The waters of Genesaret are of an exceedingly mild blue, even from a high elevation and a distance of five miles. Close at hand the witness was sailing on the lake. It is hardly proper to call them blue at all, much less deep blue. I wish to state also, not as a correction, but as a matter of opinion, that Mount Hermon is not a striking or picturesque mountain by any means, being too near the height of its immediate neighbors to be so. That is all. I do not object to the witness dragging a mountain forty-five miles to help the scenery under consideration, because it is entirely proper to do it, and besides, the picture needs it. C. W. E. of Life in the Holy Land deposes as follows. A beautiful sea lies unbosomed among the Galilean hills, in the midst of that land once possessed by Zebulon and Naphtali, Asher and Dan. The azure of the sky penetrates the depths of the lake, and the waters are sweet and cool. On the west stretch broad fertile plains. On the north the rocky shores rise step by step, until in the far distance tower the snowy heights of Hermon. On the east, through a misty veil, are seen the high plains of Peria, which stretch away in rugged mountains, leading the mind by varied paths toward Jerusalem the Holy. Flowers bloom in this terrestrial paradise, 
once beautiful and verdant with waving trees. Singing birds enchant the ear. The turtle-dove soothes with its soft note. The crested lark sends up its song toward heaven, and the grave and stately stork inspires the mind with thought, and leads it on to meditation and repose. Life here was once idyllic, charming. Here were once no rich, no poor, no high, no low. It was a world of ease, simplicity, and beauty. Now it is a scene of desolation and misery. This is not an ingenious picture. It is the worst I ever saw. It describes in elaborate detail what it terms a terrestrial paradise, and closes with the startling information that this paradise is a scene of desolation and misery. I have given two fair average specimens of the character of the testimony offered by the majority of the writers who visit this region. One says, Of the beauty of the peace I cannot say enough and then proceeds to cover up with a woof of glittering sentences, a thing which, when stripped for inspection, proves to be only an unobtrusive basin of water, some mountainous desolation, and one tree. The other, after a conscientious effort to build a terrestrial paradise out of the same materials, with the addition of a grave and stately stork, spoils it all by blundering upon the ghastly truth at the last. Nearly every book concerning Galilee and its lake describes the scenery as beautiful. No, not always so straightforward as that. Sometimes the impression intentionally conveyed is that it is beautiful, at the same time that the author is careful not to say that it is in plain Saxon. But a careful analysis of these descriptions will show that the materials of which they are formed are not individually beautiful, and cannot be wrought into combinations that are beautiful. The veneration and the affection which some of these men felt for the scenes they were speaking of heated their fancies and biased their judgment. But the pleasant falsities they wrote were full of honest sincerity, in any rate. Others wrote as they did, because they feared it would be unpopular to write otherwise. Others were hypocrites, and deliberately meant to deceive. Any of them would say in a moment, if asked, that it was always right and always best to tell the truth. They would say that, at any rate if they did not perceive the drift of the question. But why should not the truth be spoken of this region? Is the truth harmful? Has it ever needed to hide its face? God made the Sea of Galilee, and its surroundings as they are. Is it the province of Mr. Grimes to improve upon the work? I am sure, from the tenor of books I have read, that many who have visited this land in years gone by were Presbyterians, and came seeking evidences in support of their particular creed. They found a Presbyterian Palestine, and they had already made up their minds to find no other, though possibly they did not know it, being blinded by their zeal. Others were Baptists, seeking Baptist evidences and a Baptist Palestine. Others were Catholics, Methodists, Episcopalians, seeking evidences endorsing their several creeds, and a Catholic, a Methodist, an Episcopalian Palestine. Honest as these men's intentions may have been, they were full of partialities and prejudices. They entered the country with their verdicts already prepared, and they could no more write dispassionately and impartially about it than they could about their own wives and children. Our pilgrims have brought their verdicts with them. They have shown it in their conversation ever since we left Beirut. I can almost tell in set phrase what they will say when they see Tabor, Nazareth, Jericho, and Jerusalem because I have the books they will smooch their ideas from. 
These authors write pictures and frame rhapsodies, and lesser men follow and see with the author's eyes instead of their own, and speak with his tongue. What the pilgrims said at Caesarea Philippi surprised me with its wisdom. I found it afterwards in Robinson. What they said when Genesaret burst upon their vision charmed me with its grace. I find it in Mr. Thompson's Land and the Book. They have spoken often in happily worded language which never varied, of how they mean to lay their weary heads upon a stone at Bethel, as Jacob did, and close their dim eyes, and dream, perchance, of angels descending out of heaven on a ladder. It was very pretty, but I have recognized the weary head, and the dim eyes, finally. They borrowed the idea, and the words, and the construction, and the punctuation, from Grimes. The pilgrims will tell of Palestine when they get home, not as it appeared to them, but as it appeared to Thompson, and Robinson, and Grimes, with the tints varied to suit each pilgrim's creed. Pilgrims, sinners, and Arabs are all abed now, and the camp is still. Labor in loneliness is irksome. Since I made my last few notes, I have been sitting outside the tent for half an hour. Night is the time to see Galilee. Genesaret, under these lustrous stars, has nothing repulsive about it. Genesaret, with the glittering reflections of the constellations flecking its surface, almost makes me regret that I ever saw the rude glare of the day upon it. Its history and its associations are its chiefest charm in any eyes, and the spells they weave are feeble in the searching light of the sun. Then we scarcely feel the fetters. Our thoughts wander constantly to the practical concerns of life, and refuse to dwell upon things that seem vague and unreal. But when the day is done, even the most unimpressible must yield to the dreamy influences of this tranquil starlight. The old traditions of the place steal upon his memory and haunt his reveries, and then his fancy clothes all sights and sounds with the supernatural. In the lapping of the waves upon the beach he hears the dip of ghostly oars. In the secret noises of the night he hears spirit voices. In the soft sweep of the breeze the rush of invisible wings. Phantom ships are on the sea. The dead of twenty centuries come forth from the tombs, and in the dirges of the night wind the songs of old forgotten ages find utterance again. In the starlight Galilee has no boundaries but the broad compass of the heavens, and is a theatre meet for great events meet for the birth of religion able to save a world, and meet for the stately figure appointed to stand upon its stage and proclaim its high degrees. But in the sunlight one says, Is it for the deeds which were done, and the words which were spoken in this little acre of rocks and sand eighteen centuries gone, that the bells are ringing to-day in the remote islands of the sea and far and wide over continents that clasp the circumference of the huge globe? One can comprehend it only when night has hidden all incongruities, and created a theatre proper for so grand a drama. End of chapter 48 Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.